This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, a new legal podcast from Slate. I am Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's extremely weary Supreme Court correspondent. And on this, our second episode of Amicus, we're going to talk about the court's extracurricular activity this week, including a big, big decision to allow an injunction in Texas that will continue keeping open clinics that were facing closure across the state. And we'll parse what on first glance might seem to be contradictory actions around voter ID laws across the country. And finally, we'll be joined by Supreme Court correspondent Joan Biskupic to discuss her brand new biography of Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And I'm delighted to say that joining me for this episode of Amicus is Walter Dellinger, who was acting Solicitor General in the Clinton administration, is a partner in the appellate practice at O'Melveny and Myers, and who has become my own long-term partner in crime at Slate for the end of every Supreme Court term. Walter has argued a bajillion cases in front of the Supreme Court. He knows it as well as anyone, and I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you, Walter, for joining us on Amicus. And thank you, Adalia, though you are really an amica, I think, <laughs> not an amicus. It's the feminine form. But go ahead. Really? We're going to start with Latin? Okay. <laughs> um, Walter, the first question I have for you is, this past two weeks at the court uh, is best characterized by the court secretly, silently, unsigned, incomprehensibly emergency action that nobody understands. So there are cases being argued, I suppose, but what really seems to be happening is that core questions about voting laws, same-sex marriage, and now abortion regulations are being decided in secret with unexplained stays and unsigned orders. So what is going on, Walter? What is the court doing up there? And why are we all being sort of swayed by these voices in our heads at the Supreme Court that are not actually uh, briefing, arguing, or deciding any cases? Well, I think it's actually not as confusing as it seems in the sense that a court always has to decide in the couple of years it takes uh, a lawsuit to get resolved, what happens during the pendency of the lawsuit, particularly what happens when a trial court judge at the lower court rules in favor of challengers and, and uh, in, in joins the, the enforcement of a state law. Does the law go into effect or does it not go into effect for the months, indeed sometimes years, before the Supreme Court resolves the case? So we seldom see it come up so often as it has here, and I think it's because state legislatures around the country are sensing a change in the Supreme Court. Justice Alito replaced Justice O'Connor, who was sort of the balance wheel, and I think there's a sense in state legislatures that they can really push the envelope in terms of putting restrictions on voting and putting restrictions on abortion. Uh, in those two areas in particular, legislatures have gone out to where they think the court might wind up more than where the court has been in the past. And that's, that's what the skirmishing has been about the past couple of weeks. It doesn't tell you where the court's going to wind up. 
So what you're saying is that we just happen to be looking at places, probably in the same-sex marriage context as well, where you've got state courts and state legislatures getting out ahead of the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court hasn't had the final word on this. And so they're having to, in many cases, check or recalibrate or reset the status quo to tell legislatures trying to either curb access to abortion or to curb voting rights or in the same-sex marriage context to greenlight same-sex marriage, even though the court hasn't gone quite that far yet. Right. That says it perfectly. So, Walter, let's talk a little bit about this Texas decision, because this was a huge headline out of the court this week and yet almost completely unexplained. We have a very brief opinion where the court, by what looks to be a 6-3 margin, allows a great number of abortion clinics that were facing closure to remain open. They were facing closure because of two supposedly health-related rules. One was going to require clinics to meet the standards of ambulatory surgical centers, which would have required incredibly expensive retrofitting. The other requiring that doctors performing abortions have formal admitting privileges at local hospitals. It looks like this is Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Anthony Kennedy joining with the court's liberal wing to say, keep the clinics open. Can you sense what's going on, Walter? Well, you know, I had thought that these would be cases that um, a court that favors abortion restrictions would upheld until I read the lower court decisions in the Texas case and in similar cases uh, out of the Seventh Circuit where, where the Chicago area. <laughs> these are really quite aggressive state laws under the existing law. I mean, the existing law of Planned Parenthood versus Casey is that states may place restrictions on abortion but they may not unduly burden a woman's right to actually effectuate her choice. And yet the effect of these regulations is whole areas of Texas that are larger than a number of states would have no abortion provider whatsoever. And these restrictions, that I think that the dissenting opinion below showed, will have a devastating effect on women who are hostage to youth or geography or poverty. I mean, for a a young woman, 19 years old, may never have been outside the Texas county in which she is born. And these mean trips of hundreds of miles when she doesn't even have an automobile. Uh, it totally takes away the right to effectuate this choice of all of those uh, most, most vulnerable women. And the court simply says that because there are a lot of other women in Texas that can afford or live close to an abortion provider, that that's not a burden on all these other women which makes very little sense. So I think what's happened is the lower court simply refused to apply the Casey versus Planned Parenthood standard from 1992. I think they're guessing, Dahlia, that Casey won't be good law once Justice O'Connor has been replaced by Justice Alito. I want to play for you some of the audio of of Justice Anthony Kennedy reading his opinion in Gonzalez versus Carhartt. That's the partial birth abortion case where he seemed to backtrack from what he had said in Casey and seemed to lay out a kind of different interest. You know, you've you've said Casey creates this undue burden standard. Here's Kennedy uh, reading what determines uh, the outcome in the partial birth abortion case where he says, well, you know, we got to worry about these moms and about uh, their, you know, fragile emotional and psychological health. And I think what he does is open the door for the kinds of regulations we later see in Texas. So let's listen. Respect for human life finds an ultimate expression in the bond of love the mother has for her child. 
The act recognizes this reality as well. Whether to have an abortion requires a difficult and painful moral decision. While we find no reliable data to measure the phenomenon, it does seem unexceptionable to conclude that some women come to regret their choice to abort the infant life they once created and sustained. It is self-evident that a mother who comes to regret her choice to abort must struggle with grief more anguished and sorrow more profound when she learns only after the event, the event what once she did not know, that she allowed a doctor to pierce the skull and vacuum the fast-developing brain of, un, of her unborn child, a child assuming human form. The state's interest in respect for life is advanced by the dialogue that better informs the political and legal systems, the medical profession, expectant mothers, and society as a whole of the consequences that follow from a decision to elect a late-term abortion. Does Kennedy, in that opinion, really open the door for that Texas omnibus uh, abortion law that more or less says Anything we can do to protect mothers, to protect the unborn, anything we can do to make this traumatic event a little bit less traumatic is going to pass the undue burden test? You know, I think what's different about Texas is that this is not a situation where the legislature said we want to cut back on abortion. The legislature is absolutely denying that that's its intent. It's purporting to be acting solely and exclusively to promote women's health, and is shutting down the only access to providers within hundreds and hundreds of miles of many of these uh, of many of these women. So, I think that this is a court that might well be prepared to overrule Roe versus Wade. It is very close to that point, and Kennedy will do everything but say it uh, in name, in my view. But upholding completely disingenuous laws that that purport to advance women's health and don't may be a step the court might not be willing to take. So let's turn to voting rights, if we can, because that's been another locus of some craziness at the court. In the last three weeks alone, we've seen the court, again, silent but deadly, issuing all kinds of uh, contradictory messages about various states and their voting rights initiatives. So, for instance, just in the past month, we've seen the high court allow Ohio to curb at least some of its early voting. Then we've seen the court turn around and bless the demise of North Carolina's same-day voter registration and out-of-precinct balloting. And then the court turned around and blocked Wisconsin's new voter ID law last week from going into effect, at least for this midterm election. Is there any way to reconcile all the mixed messaging and signaling coming out of the court on voting rights? You know, sure, there, there, there are a couple of ways. Uh, one of them, Professor Rick Hansen, who I always look to on, on voting cases, um, notes that the court is very reluctant to allow changes to go into effect right before an election that might unsettle the electorate and that in some sense that explains the outcome in the case. But Dolly, if you step back from it, there doesn't appear to be a lot of confusion at all. All around the country, state legislatures are turning their backs on 250 years of expanding the franchise, of allowing more people to vote, of enhancing democracy. They're turning their back on that, and they're adding all kinds of restrictions that make it more difficult for people to vote. And the Supreme Court is upholding those. The Supreme Court is across the board allowing all of those restrictions to go into effect 
with one exception. And that is the Wisconsin case where the state's voter ID law went into effect at a time before the election when it was too late to get a voter ID. And 10% of the electorate would be unable, who, who did not have the kind of ID required by the law, would be legally unable to get one in time for the election. And um, the majority that had uh, uh, let the Wisconsin law go into effect in the court below said, well, most people won't have any problems. The idea that you could disenfranchise 10% of the public on the grounds that most people weren't disenfranchised was too much for the court. I think the court is prepared to uphold a lot of these voter restrictions. And the legislatures that have enacted this are utterly indifferent to the fact that to obtain an ID, if you don't have a car and you're not a driver and you're living in an inner city in, say, Indiana, it can take two or three bus trips with transfers to get just to the one place in the county where you can obtain the requisite identification, two or three transfer bus trips back. How do you do that if you're a single mother with kids? You've got to get to school and get to your job when they're only open on weekdays. It is, uh, uh, to me... What's distressing about it is not just the outcome, but the fact that for the first time in our history, with the exception of the period right after Reconstruction, we're cutting back on the ability of people to vote. It's so funny because everything you're saying, Walter, about voter ID is reminiscent of what you're saying about procuring an abortion in Texas, which is, hey, we're just writing off the people who can't drive 150 miles, you know, but right. what's wrong with right. them for not being able to drive, you know, take a day off work and get a pedicure on the way and, you know, get their voter ID. And it's funny because the, the similarity in the two arguments uh, are inescapable, that the court is just willing to write off thousands of people who simply don't have the ability to take a couple days off work and get jump in their Ferrari and get whatever needs to be gotten. You know, that's a great point. This is going to be, uh, if you're too poor to have a car, it's too bad. You can't get an abortion, and we're going to make it very difficult for you to vote. And, and I think it's worth flagging, Walter, uh, that all this is uh, being enacted, chasing after the ghost of voter impersonation fraud, which we have tried and tried and tried in this country to ferret out a lot, a big epidemic of voter ID fraud, and we don't see it. People don't register as Donald Duck, uh, show up with ID that says they're Donald Duck, and then vote as Donald Duck, thus swinging elections in their favor. It simply doesn't happen. And there's a terrific line from Judge Richard Posner's uh, dissent in uh, last week's Seventh Circuit. That's uh, the circuit that includes Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin, where he says we cannot allow the voter ID law to stand. And he says there is no evidence that voter impersonation fraud is a problem. How can the fact that the legislature says it's a problem turn it into one? And he goes on to say, if the Wisconsin legislator said that witches are a problem, could Wisconsin courts be permitted to conduct witch trials? And the fact is, this is all chasing after a phenomenon that almost everybody in the country acknowledges simply doesn't exist. Right. I think it's, it's an embarrassment to our democracy and our judicial system. I mean, in Texas, a state-issued student identification card doesn't count but your gun registration does count. And so you can see what's going on in terms of who you're discouraging, who you want to vote, and who you don't. 
Walter Dellinger, former acting solicitor general for the Clinton administration, uh, longstanding contributor to Slate and dear friend, I want to thank you so, so much for joining us on Amicus today. And we look forward to having you back. And we look forward to hearing all of your great wisdom inside and outside the Supreme Court chamber over the next coming years. Thank you for being here. You're quite welcome, Dahlia. Now we're going to take a breather from this week's action at the court and talk about the story of one of its newest members. Justice Sonia Sotomayor is the subject of a brand new biography just out this month by my fellow court reporter uh, and dear colleague Joan Biskupic. The book is called Breaking In, The Rise of Sonia Sotomayor and the Politics of Justice. And Joan has agreed to take a few minutes away from her day job at Reuters to discuss the book, uh, the biography, why she wrote it, and uh, some of the scoops buried within. So welcome to Amicus, Joan. It is fabulous to have you. Thank you, Dahlia. So I think the first question I had for you is, why Sotomayor? You've written really uh, powerful biographies of two other justices, Antonin Scalia and Sandra Day O'Connor. Sotomayor is complicated because there are other biographies of her out there. Her story is well known, and she certainly seems to have occupied the field by writing her own autobiography. So what made you want to jump into this uh, cacophony? I wanted to pick up where she left off and figure out why it was Sonia Sotomayor who got this historic appointment. You know, in 2009, she became the first Hispanic on the Supreme Court, and that was no accident. So I wanted to trace uh, her political maneuvering behind the scenes and also how her own life matched the trajectory of Latinos in America. As you know, she was born in 1954, the year of Brown v. Board of Education, but it was also the year of Hernandez v. Texas when Hispanics for the first time were considered a protected class, just like African-Americans. And there were so many pivot points in her life and career that matched the emergence of Hispanics on the scene. So that was how I started. But I also wanted to look at how she had shaken up the institution beginning in even her first term when she got the justices to get up in salsa and look at just what kind of justice this historic figure had been. So, so talk about that a little, that opening scene, because I think it's so emblematic of what the book is doing, this salsa scene at the end of term party and this larger than life, exuberant justice who wants to salsa dance with a bunch of stodgy, in many cases, elderly, cranky justices. I mean, that clearly sets the terms of the debate. She is an outsider who is quite literally breaking in. Tell us what that scene signifies to you. I thought it showed why it was she who had crossed the barrier first. As you know, there had been several Hispanics through the past 20 years who had been mentioned as perhaps the first one who would be appointed to the high court, but it was Sonia Sotomayor. And I thought that scene where she gets up at this exclusive party where the clerks do the entertaining and the justices watch, and suddenly she's doing the entertaining and bringing her colleagues into it, I thought that that scene showed how she had spent a lifetime challenging boundaries and disrupting the norm, and she wasn't going to wait her turn. 
And uh, she wanted to be different and, in fact, still talks about how she's different. And, and that's really a theme of the story of how we talk about Sonia Sotomayor is still, you know, here we are five terms later and she's very aggressive at oral argument. She talks a lot. She cuts off her colleagues. So there's this kind of double-edged sword layer of this, right, which is she is kind of pushy. She doesn't wait her turn. She is sort of brash. And that, I think, comes through in the way her colleagues think about her. That's so true. And it's a difficult subject to take on sometimes. I thought when I did the biography of Antonin Scalia, I had taken on my most polarizing subject. But clearly, I did not. Even today, after five years, she says that she constantly faces doubters, even after she's gotten onto the highest court, has a lifetime appointment, and has certainly shown that she can cut it with the others. But she's still a polarizing figure, and she's learned to be effective in setting herself apart. And at the court, uh, she certainly has uh, broken even from her more liberal colleagues on things such as criminal procedure and uh, even in some affirmative action, too. And what I believe is that the kinds of skills that got her to the court in the first place might not work as effectively in dealing with her eight other colleagues, but she has shown that uh, she's going to have a voice at least outside the court and probably inside the court, too. And we see that every day, right? The, the famous bright red nails, the big earrings. There's just constant signaling from her that I'm not going to play by your rules. That's right. Although I have to say that when I asked her about, uh, about that, about what kind of justice she sees herself as being, she stresses that she does not see herself as a rabble rouser. She said, you know, what I do is done in a lawyerly judicial way. And in many respects, that's true. When you think of the bulk of her rulings, the overwhelming approach that she has to her work, it's like most of the other justices. Her opinions generally lack rhetorical fire. They're marked by exhaustive recitations of the facts of the case and legal precedents. But as you know, uh, one case that I do pick apart in the book uh, shows that she can be a robust voice on race. And when the court faced a pivotal case on university affirmative action in 2013, she was willing to write a scorching opinion that caused the majority to alter its course. So, so this is one of the great scoops in the book, how this dissent that we all came to associate with last year's affirmative action case out of Michigan was actually uh, 2.0. Uh, it was a reprisal of something she had written originally for the Texas affirmative action case. And this is a huge scoop. And I should add that she was very, very clear when you talked to her that this was reporting that was happening in your conversations with other justices, not her. That's right. She was concerned that I had found out what happened in conference. To remind your listeners of where we were back in 2012-2013, the Supreme Court takes up the case in October 2012. It's brought by a young white woman by the name of Abigail Fisher, who's challenging the University of Texas at Austin's policy of looking at applicants in part based on racial characteristics comes to the Supreme Court, we hear oral arguments, and the signals from the bench seem as if the justices are ready to reject the University of Texas policy and roll back affirmative action in the U.S. And it takes months and months and months, and we don't see an opinion. And finally, in June of 2013, a ruling emerges 
where the vast majority has allowed the University of Texas program to stand. It sent back the case for lower court review, but has not undercut crucial precedent on affirmative action. It seemed a surprise, uh, but we all took it at face value. And in my reporting, I discovered that a dissenting statement she had actually written at the time had caused the conservative majority to alter its course and to actually retreat on where it had been with the University of Texas case and really make a difference. And when I talked to the justices about what was in that original statement that she then did not air because she had been persuasive with her colleagues, they said, wait and see what emerges in the new Michigan affirmative action case. And that's what we heard in April of 2014. So, Joan, this becomes, as you said, uh, her dissent in this last spring's shooty case, the Michigan affirmative action case. And it is incredibly powerful. She reads the dissent from the bench. And it is the first time in her career that she has spoken from the bench in such a personal, passionate way about race. And going back to what you initially said, it drives her critics insane. Yes, it wasn't just the first time that she had spoken personally about race. It was the first time she had even read a dissent from the bench. She went on for nearly 12 minutes, which was just about as long as the majority opinion uh, was aired by uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy. And it was quite passionate. It was a very moving scene uh, this April morning, April 22nd of 2014. And she talked, first of all, about why this 2006 Michigan law forbidding racial criteria, was unfairly imposed. And then, though, she talked about how much race matters in America. She spoke generally from the bench, but then when you read her opinion, you saw that she said the following, race matters because of the slights, the snickers, the silent judgments that reinforce the most crippling of thoughts. I do not belong here. And it's so powerful because she talks in direct conflict with Chief Justice John Roberts. I mean, she is taking on his assessment in the Seattle schools case, the parents case, which was a prior race case that the court heard in 2007. And he really feels like the way to get beyond race is to get beyond race. And we got to stop obsessing on it. We got to get over it. And she just goes after that premise. I'm going to play for you uh, where she says, we just have to talk about this. In the end, my colleagues believe that we should leave race out of the constitutional picture entirely and let the voters sort it out. This this reasoning ignores the stark reality, all too apparent in communities throughout the country, that race still matters. The way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to speak openly and candidly on the subject of race and to apply the Constitution with eyes open to the unfortunate effects of centuries of racial discrimination. As members of the judiciary tasked with intervening to carry out the guarantee of equal protection, we ought not sit back and wish away rather than confront the racial inequality that exists in our society. It is this view that works harm by perpetuating the facile notion that what makes race matter is acknowledging the simple truth that race does matter. 
and that it has influenced and continues to influence voters' decisions to deny minorities meaningful and equal access to the political process. So, so Joan, is there any way to hear uh, that language, both in her oral dissent and her written dissent, other than as a kind of rebuke to the chief justice, her attempt to say, maybe you're over it, maybe you don't want to talk about it, but I want to talk about race? I don't think so. And I think the chief justice indicated that he felt it was that kind of mocking of his prior statement uh, himself, because he criticizes her in his separate opinion for expounding her own policy preferences and views. And he said that does more harm than good to question the openness and candor of those on either side of the debate. And and you and I have talked about this a little bit, but I think it's so interesting that this was a turn that if Thurgood Marshall had taken it in his time, right, to say, you don't understand about race and I'm going to talk and you're going to listen, even the most conservative justices in his era would have listened to that. Even if they didn't agree, they would have understood that it needed to be said. And it's so interesting to me that when Sotomayor tries to say, here are things you don't know about being a Latina in America, the response is not the same as it was in the Thurgood Marshall era. That is interesting. And she put herself on the line in a way that uh, she hadn't before. And uh, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in assigning her the opinion, knew exactly where she was going to come from. In fact, Dahlia, when I first heard about this opinion that she had written uh, originally in the University of Texas case, some of the justices said it was an opinion that only Sonia Sotomayor would have written, given her background. And that brings us back to your subtitle of your book, The Politics of Justice, right? These are not just identity politics issues. They are political issues. I mean, this valence around the conversation about the court that has to do with gender and race right now, it is very, very difficult for the court to conduct itself as though, you know, this is just doctrine. We are trying to just apply the law. When you have people speaking out the way Sotomayor does about race, the way Ginsburg does about gender, and saying, you don't get it. Right. And that's a tough message for those on the other side to hear. And they have not been quiet themselves about it. Joan Biskupic, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. This book is absolutely terrific. And I really cannot wait to hear who your next subject of your next biography is. Thank you, Dahlia. Joan Biskupic is the author of Breaking In, The Rise of Sonia Sotomayor and the Politics of Justice, an absolutely terrific book that came out this month. And that's it for this second episode of Slate's Amicus Podcast. Let us know more of what you like about the show, what you'd like to hear more of, less of on future episodes. You can reach us at our new personalized email address, amicus at slate.com. That's amicus, A-M-I-C-U-S, at slate.com. We love your letters. Thank you for sending them. And thanks also to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers, and I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We will be back with you next week for another edition of Amicus. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.